I invite you to turn with me to a brief passage here in Luke chapter 9. We're looking at just verses 18 through 20. Luke chapter 9, 18 through 20. And as I reflected upon the the main idea or the point of this passage, um, I was reminded of of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, um, where he makes an argument that Jesus could not merely be a good moral teacher. You've maybe heard this before, um, summarized as either he's a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. The three L's, liar, lunatic, Lord. Well, this is where this argument comes from. It's mere Christianity. And you can read it there as I read it to you. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, God. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I know there's some arguments about whether he really covered all of the bases there, and some have have questioned, you know, what if he was a legend? Um, What if Jesus didn't really exist? And we can argue um, another time for the rest of the apologetics that would defend this view. But but the point is, um, we need to understand how we view Christ. What is our view of who Jesus is? Remember how Luke began this gospel? His gospel writing, this was an, he was intending to write an orderly account for Theophilus, an orderly account of the life of Jesus so that Theophilus and Christians like him could be confident in who Jesus was, uh, that they could be confident or certain concerning the things that they had been taught by the apostles. And so the Bible has several examples of people who confessed certainty about their faith. Uh, Job knew that his Redeemer lived. Uh, Joshua knew as well as all of the Israelites that God had kept his promises to them. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, knew that God could save them from the fiery furnace, as he did. And so we can be confident in God because he has proven to be faithful, and God cannot lie. And he will accomplish all that he promises to do. And so the first and greatest promise that we have in Scripture is found in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is the promise that develops throughout the Old Testament and and, and finds fulfillment in the cross, at the cross, where Christ 
dies suffering a bruise to his heel, as Genesis 3.15 would define it, and yet he is at the same time crushing and defeating sin and death, crushing and defeating the the purposes of, of Satan. So the Messiah is the snake crusher, and it seems likely that it is that realization or the promise of that coming to fruition in Christ that he is that's what's on his mind as he begins praying with his disciples. Um, he's actually praying alone, the passage tells us, but it's in the, the presence of his disciples. And so before we go any further, let me read this passage to us, and then we'll ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Verse, Luke 9, verse 18. And now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity to consider Christ and his identity, who Jesus is was considered by the, the crowds who gathered and followed him or, or just considered who he was in their, in, in, in their own worldview, and then who the disciples thought of him or, or how the disciples thought of him. Would you pray that we would be in line in a, with a right understanding of Christ, that all of us would be strengthened in our faith from this text, would be edified as we study it, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth, and that we would respond in confident obedience to your word. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So we see in verse 18 there that it, he was praying alone, but obviously the disciples were with him, and, and he just kind of looks up, and he talks to them, begins asking them this question. Who do the crowds say that I am? We know that there's been a transition because in verses 10 through 17, they were in Bethsaida or near Bethsaida. And and so I I put a map here for you uh, to help you to see. You have the Sea of Galilee at the bottom of the map there, and Bethsaida is right at that northeast tip. Um, It's just really at the most northern part, would be Bethsaida, and 25 miles north of that would be Caesarea Philippi. And we know from the parallel accounts that this event takes place in Caesarea Philippi. Matthew and and Mark record that that this conversation takes place there. And so again, they're about 25 miles north of Galilee. It's the only event in the New Testament in the Gospels that takes place there. Nothing else happens, um, at least that's described in Caesarea Philippi. Um, But this was a prominent region. Um, They would have been at the very foot there of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, pretty much year-round, is capped by snow. So really a pretty beautiful scene in a great location to to pray. Um, But it's also a place where they were probably right in front of or very near a foreign temple. A temple to a foreign god. Uh, this emperor Augustus uh, gifted the region to Herod in hopes that he might bring some order to the region. 
Um, and so after Herod's death, his son Philip became tetrarch of the region and then renamed it um, Caesarea, which in order to distinguish Caesarea from the Caesarea that was on the coast, they called this place Caesarea Philippi. But we do know as well that this same region is the one where Dan, the tribe of Dan, established themselves. So there, they, remember in the book of Judges, they were wandering around, and then by the end you get to chapter 18, and they, find, and they don't have a place uh, still to settle. So in chapter 18, they, they decide to take over this land because it's rich. The soil is rich with nutrients, and they establish themselves there with a cult, and with a, a priest that they, like their own personal tribal priest that they've appointed to become their, the, the priest of their cult. And so basically, this location is, is known for its idolatry um, from the beginning of, of time. You have, in fact, an excavation that take, takes place there. I found this image. This region has there's several numerous inscriptions and shrines dedicated to various gods in the Roman period. Um, in this particular image, there's three different um, temples that are found in, in Caesarea Philippi with inscriptions to August, to Zeus, and to Pan and the dancing goats. In fact, the prior name before it was Caesarea Philippi was Paneus, reflecting a, a prominent worship of Pan or the god of the underworld. So the, the region is a place that not only was prominent for idolatry like that, but it was also a place where emperor worship was beginning to be established, right? It's renamed Caesarea Philippi. Now Philip is establishing um, temples there that are prominent, prominently located. And so in other words, the region is filled with various gods that have been worshipped there throughout history. And so it made for a very fitting location for Jesus to ask Right, the disciples a question about his own identity. Uh, Peter's answer, the son, as recorded in Matthew 16, 16, is you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and so that fuller answer, that fuller explanation would have been a not so subtle refutation of the region's reputation for idolatry, right? This is, you are the, you're the living God. So this passage is a call for us to consider who Jesus is. Do you know him personally? Can you explain who Jesus is and what he has done? It's important that we study so that we know how to respond to the various answers uh, that culture gives to this question. But even more importantly, we need to be assured uh, how we answer the question ourselves. Right? And so we begin here with this first part of the question in verses 19, or sorry, 18 and 19, who do the crowds say that I am? Um, here we have an answer to the question that our, our previous passage had left ambiguous. Remember, we, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000 and the crowds, we don't really know how they responded to it. They'd been fed, but, but it doesn't talk about them worshiping or, you know, or, or believing in Jesus because of the miracle. So now you have the opportunity to see how, how are the crowds responding to Jesus. So they asked the disciples, or he asked the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they provide the same answers that Herod gave in the passage we saw several weeks ago in verses 7 through 9. 
uh, where Herod says that some say John had been raised from the dead, um, by some Elijah had appeared, and by others that the prophets of old had arisen. You have the exact same list in the same order given by um, the disciples in response to Jesus. First, John the Baptist. Because Herod had executed him, many did think that he... Uh, that God had raised him from the dead and given him some sort of supernatural strength. Um, and so they considered the possibility of Jesus being John the Baptist. Others considered him to be Elijah, also raised from the dead. Um, it stems from an assumption that he is fulfilling Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which, which Luke has already said was fulfilled by John the Baptist. So Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So you have the promise of Elijah coming before the day of the Lord, before, his, uh, before the day of judgment. And yet in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, about that reference, we read this. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So you have this this promise being fulfilled here of Elijah coming and it's saying in the, in the power and spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist fulfilled that. And then the, there's another option, the third option of a risen prophet of old. The other parallel accounts mention Jeremiah by name, but it doesn't necessarily say that Jeremiah was the only prophet. So some have suggested Jeremiah or another prophet of the Old Testament had, had also risen from the dead. But in each case, you note that they believed... Uh, that the belief was that he represented someone who had come back to life from the dead and they attributed then his supernatural abilities to that sort of favorable position that God would have given him. But none of these answers identify him as the Messiah, as the one who was to come. Right? He's, he's always a, a forerunner, describes the Messiah by, based on these answers. And so we might suggest even a fourth answer that the scribes and Pharisees provide later on. They suggest that Jesus was empowered by the prince of demons, Beelzebul, because their own audience was beginning to, to be swayed by Jesus' teaching and be, you know, begin to follow him and listen to him. So they were out of fear of their own power and authority. They began to challenge um, Jesus. And one of the things that they, they came up with and we'll see this in chapter 11, is that they could accuse Jesus of being empowered by the prince of demons. So the crowds understood that Jesus did not teach like the scribes and Pharisees, and so they sought to undermine that authority and to tarnish his popularity. Um, but of course, Jesus, is, Jesus refutes them by saying, how can, how can a kingdom fight against itself and, and, and survive? So we find a, a lot more answer, answers today. In, in liberal theology, um, you have liberal theology stripped Jesus of all supernatural power. Uh, they made him into nothing more than a great ethical teacher. And that's really what C.S. Lewis is, is arguing against. 
at the idea that, that Jesus is, is just a good moral person who teaches people to be good and moral. You have the same idea with existentialism, creating sort of their own version of Jesus without any divine qualities, stripping him of, of, of being a part of the Godhead. And so I, I, I like what R.C. Sproul says um, in his commentary on this passage. He wrote, it seems that as philosophical schools change, Jesus becomes a chameleon whose identity is shaped and reshaped to suit. So regardless of which position uh, the ancient audience held, none of their answers considered Jesus merely a good moral teacher. That wasn't an option to them in that day. Um, and it would be difficult, of course, to, to keep up with all the different worldviews, uh, to let, let alone how each of these worldviews understands and interprets the identity of Jesus. Um, I know that would be very profitable for apologetics and for evangelism, but it's really the, the most important lesson for us from this passage is what he asked the disciples, right? The real question that, that we have to answer is, is, who do you say that I am? And so Jesus addresses his, his question to the group. He says, it says that he asked them, Uh, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And only Peter answers. Uh, his confession that Jesus is the Christ of God doesn't raise any objections, so it can be assumed that, that, that all of the disciples agree with this confession. Um, Peter often acted as the spokesman for the 12. You see it throughout the Gospels, not just in Luke, but in, in the other Gospels as well. Peter is often the one who speaks up on behalf of the, the 12. But what do they understand about this answer? What, is, what do they mean by this? Because this is a very brief answer. Right? You are the Christ of God. Well, Christ is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah. So Peter is acknowledging that Jesus is the anointed one that Psalms, Psalm 2.2 speaks of. He is the one that, um, that would fulfill the law and the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus claimed the title of Messiah for himself when he spoke to the woman at the well. He says, you are speaking to him. In Matthew 16, 17, which is the parallel account here, Peter, uh, Jesus tells Peter that God revealed his answer to him, that he could not have come up with this on his own. It would be, uh, and that it would be upon that confession that Christ would build his church. It would be on this rock. I'll build my church, the rock of this confession. So really, here's, here's the point of the passage, that our confession, as he is about the identity of Jesus, determines whether we know him as he is revealed in Scripture. Right? It's, a, it's a personal confession that we must adopt and believe. Upon this confession, Christ is building his church. We do not get to make up our own confession. We don't get to pick and choose what aspects of the confession we believe. If we get this confession of Christ wrong, then we prove that we do not know him. And so I, I love as what, what J.C. Ryle says, and, and we'll conclude just thinking about this, that the Christianity that saves is a thing personally grasped, personally experienced, personally felt, and personally possessed. Now, of course, when we gather, and oftentimes we talk about the, uh, 
the emphasis of the corporate nature of our duty, right? the aspects of our faith. In fact, last week we talked about that in terms of the, the gathering of the, the, I mean, those who were, sorry, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, we talked about Jesus' compassion that is a model for us, right? that we are to be, have that Christ-like compassion um, for others, for our neighbors. And so his willingness to care for the needy crowd that followed him reminds us of our calling to show generous compassion to our neighbor. And so I said that we must go beyond the personal needs of ourselves, right? We must not just be thinking about ourselves. We must be thinking about the church corporately, the needs of our neighbors here within this community, as well as our, our physical neighbors uh, next door who, who aren't in church. But this passage kind of goes in the opposite direction. It says, we do want you to focus on your personal faith. This passage emphasizes the personal component of our faith. Before we can rightly consider our neighbor, we do have to rightly know Jesus Christ. We must know Jesus in a saving way, and that means that we are willing to raise them with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9, and 10. God justifies and saves those who personally believe with their hearts and confess with their mouths. And so this is just simply a reminder to you, and maybe especially those who are younger, if you know, attending church, you can attend church all your lives. Many of the people in the crowds here did that. Week after week in the synagogues, and yet when Christ came onto the scene, they rejected him. They did not know him. And so you, you need to make that personal uh, acknowledgement, profession of your faith, confessing him, believing him in your hearts, and then confessing him with your mouths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder, this simple reminder from this passage. Even recognizing the region that they're in and the, and the area where he's asking this question, they could have looked over and seen idols all around them, people who had false views of God, people who, who were worshiping at the temples of foreign gods or giving their emperor worship. And then coming, being confronted with the identity of Christ understanding this one who stood before them as Jesus, did they know him to be the Messiah? And so we thank you that you did reveal to them that truth, that they did confess rightly. And we thank you that you continue to do that work by your spirit in us, that you give us the ability to, to comprehend this truth and to accept it, to rest in that. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here that does not know Christ in this way, that does not have a proper understanding of his identity, that they would take the time to explore, respond who he is and what he's done, especially here in this gospel, and to respond in repentance and faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.